Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Stick to Wrestling. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling, a classic wrestling podcast where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a raw bone and wicked good podcast. Before we get rolling, I want to once again invite you to join our Facebook group. One example of why you should, something came up on my Twitter when Billy Jack Haynes was running per, uh, opposition to Don Owen in 1988 or 1989, he had a guy named Lex Luthor who looks exactly like Lex Luger. Um, it's a funny picture, in my opinion. Uh, follow me on Twitter. Uh, just search John McAdam and follow the guy who has the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. If you would like to donate to Stick to Wrestling, just go to PayPal and uh, donate to ProWrestlingArchives at gmail.com. No amount is too small and certainly no amount is too large. If you know Jeff Bezos, the uh, the Amazon guy, turn him onto the podcast. Have him throw me a couple of million. I'll buy a condo at Old Old <laughs> Excuse me, Old Orchard Beach, and I'll invite him over for a burger. So there we go. And that's it. That's my intro. And I want to bring on our occasional co-host, uh, Mr. Steve Generelli. Steve, thank you for taking the time. John, uh, thank you for having me back. And uh, I've never told you this, but I think uh, you were the first choice to go up on that rocket that Bezos owns. Uh, he couldn't get you, so he went with William Shatner as a backup. So. <laughs> I think he wants to put me on the defective rocket. But anyway, <laughs> the Twitter guy's rocket. And joining us once again, the king of Baltimore himself, the most charming man in Charm City, Mr. John Fell. John, thank you for coming back. Oh, thank you for having me for this third part. And this is going to be pretty exciting, the top 10 of 1983. Yeah, this is the first time we've actually done something like this. Usually, if we're going to do a show like this, we do it all in one setting, and I ask Lou to cut it in half or cut it in three pieces. But no, we actually took two weeks between recording, and like I said, I think that's the first time we've ever done that. One thing I've, I've dawned on me today, guys, for about nine years, more than nine years, I have had every episode of world-class championship wrestling from like 82 through, I want to say 88, every episode of Mid-South Wrestling from 82 until like the end of 1985, and I still have not watched all of them. I, I, I'm talking about just an excess of riches. Steve, do you have Peacock? Yeah, I, I do, and I really enjoy Peacock. How about you, John? Yeah, I have it. All right, cool. Yeah, I, I just, you know, Sunday afternoon, I can just sit down and watch a 40-year-old episode of Mid-South Wrestling that I never had access to. So anyway, part three of a three-part series, uh, giving awards out to the top performers in pro wrestling in 1983. Now the big award, the most valuable player, uh, wrestler of the year, however you want to look at it. We're going each going to do our top 10 and John Fell, I'd like to start with you. Who was your number 10 on your list? This wrestler, I kind of just, uh, I don't want to say I kind of shoehorned him or kind of worked it in there, but believe it or not, it was the Iron Sheik. Oh, wow. And the reason why is I know that, you know, he was basically working as a transition, and when they decided they were going to do the title change, you know, he was kind of next in line for New York. But, you know, it was a great angle that they worked. They had Bob doing the the, the Persian clubs, and he got hurt, and... You know, the, the Sheik was just perfect. You know, he 
went in, took the title, held it until January 84 when he lost it to Hogan. But, you know, he also was, you know, asked by Vern Gagne to possibly hurt Hogan. And now he did what was best for the business and didn't do it. So I give him props just for that and for being that transition champion that worked a good angle into 84. You know, I, I got to say, I never really believed that story. I, I, I'll bet Vern made a joke about it or something like that, but I, I never believed Vern actually paid Iron Sheik or, or offered Iron Sheik money to, to hurt Hulk Hogan. I mean, if you read Bobby Heenan's first book about you know how he quit the AWA, it was like, okay, well, good luck. <laughs> and so that's why I, I don't think he went out for that. But Iron Sheik, you know what? He's not even on my honorable mention but now i feel a little bit silly for that because my god the guy beat bob backland in 1983 so i mean he certainly is is a candidate steve what do you think you know like yourself he really wasn't on my radar he wasn't on my honorable mentions either but you know now that john mentions his name if you're just going by the most important wrestlers of the year uh, yeah iron sheik would be a no-brainer for 83 and on top of that, I mean, you know, he had a, a very minor run in Southwest Championship Wrestling, but I mean, he was main eventing against, uh, you know, teaming with Ivan Koloff against Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch in Georgia. So, I mean, you know, that by itself, that's a nice uh, side piece, I guess. But I mean, he beat, he's the guy who beat Bob Backlund. So good call, John. Thank you. And Bob actually was kind of like my honorable mention at number 10. I mean, here's a guy who had been champion for you know, what, since 1978. And, you know, it was just time, you know, he was probably just tired and burned out. But yeah, that's what I, I got Bob for honorable mention behind the Sheik at number 10. Okay, Steve, who is your number 10? My number 10 um, ended the year as the Missouri State Champion. He wrestled Ric Flair on Christmas night at Reunion Arena in Dallas. He feuded with the Freebirds all year. He feuded with Ric Flair for most of the year. He had big matches with Jimmy Garvin, Kamala, and King Kong Bundy. My number 10 is none other than David Von Erich. Okay, I had David Von Erich as an, an honorable mention, and it was hard to leave for me to leave both David and Kevin off the top 10, but 1983 was a, a big year. I mean, and David Von Erich, you know, had he lived, I really do believe he would have won the NWA championship from Ric Flair. I don't know what the rain would have been like. I don't know if it would, would have been more than the three weeks that Kerry Von Erich had. Uh, what are your thoughts on David Von Erich as Steve's number 10, John? He was my number five. I had him up there. I, as I was looking, he was number five for me. As I was looking through to, to put my top 10 together, I really looked at each territory and kind of picked out what I felt were the MVPs. But yeah, just Steve nailed it alone with what David was able to accomplish. And unfortunately, you know, he passed away the following year, but I had David at number five. I, wow, David at number five. That's that's. I mean, you can't argue with it because so many guys had big years in 1983, and, and David Von Erich was a really important part of that puzzle. My number 10, and here's the thing, okay? We're talking about MVPs, right? Michael Jordan won the basketball, NBA basketball MVP five times. Now, who really thinks Michael Jordan was only the best player on the planet five times? It gets better. <laughs> Mickey Mantle won the MVP three times. Give me a break. He was the MVP, the best player in the American League, way more than three times. Willie Mays, twice. 
get out of here. I know Duke Snyder was playing at the same time. I know Stan Musial was playing at the same time, Hank Aaron. But no, Mays was better than all of those guys. That's embarrassing. So here I am doing the, the thing that I don't like. And I'm going to have Nick Bockwinkle at number 10, because even though he had a great year, it really was just another year of Nick being great. When I think of 1983, I don't look back and say, oh, you know, Nick Bockwinkle did this. He did that. It was just another year of him being fantastic. John, where did you have Nick Bockwinkle ranked? I had number nine. Okay. I feel I a little bit better now. <laughs> no, no, I looked at the same thing. You know, when you, you talk about the rise of Hogan and we always talk about it takes two to tango. He was one of the, with one of the best in the ring and Bachwinkle at his age could still go. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, I got Bachwinkle at number nine. I, I do remember like in 1983, uh, saying this about both Nick Bockwinkle and Harley Race. Yes, it's all working. The, the promotion is successful, but really it's time for something else, and that might have factored into my ranking. Steve, where did you have Nick Bockwinkle ranked? You know, I, I didn't really take him too seriously for this year. Uh, it's kind of dumb of me to say that, but I guess I'm using the perspective of, you know, what was, what was his impact? What was... Uh, you know, as far as some, as far as like if the year was ending and we're going into 1984, I'm kind of looking at like the shredder on the MLB network. You know, would he be like a, a top draft choice for Vince or another promotion? And I guess, I guess I kind of took him for granted, but I, I can definitely see why you gave him that spot. Well, you know what, though? I mean, we're the three of us are kind of on the same page. It's like, okay, and you're right. You know, where else? Would Nick Bockwinkle fit in in another promotion? I mean, would he get a big push in Florida, Georgia? Probably, but you know that's about it. In, in by the way, by the time 1983 came around, yeah, yeah, he he. Um, I mean, he's one of my all-time favorites as far as just somebody who doesn't get nearly enough credit. But uh, here I am, not giving him enough credit. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, like Willie Mays, Nick Bockwinkle is being taken for granted. So, John, you had Nick Bockwinkle number nine. We've already discussed yep. him. Steve, who did you have in your number nine spot? Well, number nine, uh, I'll give you a little mystery here. Um, this number nine started his 1982 in the WWF. And uh, I, th I was doing a little research, and I found this interesting. He left the WWF in mid-82. And his one of his last uh, matches before his next territory, this uh, number nine teamed with Bret Hart and Dynamite Kid in Japan and lost to Tatsumi Fujinami, Tiger Mask, and Kenjo Kimura. But then our number nine went all the way to the Carolinas and had major feuds with uh, Roddy Piper, Bob Orton, and other people. Uh, my number nine is Greg the Hammer Valentine. <laughs> Greg Valentine was very hard for me to leave off. I had him uh, number 12 for all intents and purposes. I mean, he was the top guy in the mid-Atlantic area. He held the United States championship. And yeah, like you said, he had the big Japan tour. He had a major match at Starcade 83. I mean, you know, a lot of guys had big 83s. And it was hard for me to leave Greg Valentine off. I Like I said, I had him at, you know, for intents and purposes, number 12. John, where did you have Greg Valentine ranked? I had him at number six. Okay. Just, just for everything that Steve went to. I mean, it, Steve just basically just listed it all off. But, you know, again, Valentine was just, you know, he was such an incredible talent. And 
I felt that he just had an incredible 83 and deserved to be high on my list just for his accomplishments alone. I mean, this might have been his peak as a pro wrestler, and he had a heck of a run. You know, one thing, it's, it's funny looking back at his career now. Uh, I'm sure you guys, you may have seen WrestleMania this year. And, and during the Hall of Fame, they actually had this little area where they had the legends. And, you know, now that we've, had, we've lost so many legends, there really aren't too many that are still there. And one of the only, I think one of the, there were only like two legends from the 80s who were at the Hall of Fame this year. And it was Jimmy Hart and Greg Valentine. And so Greg Valentine has kind of become a last man standing for the 80s uh, amongst the WWF people. Yeah, really. I mean, he's a guy, in my opinion, he might be the top guy from the 80s who is not in the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame. Yeah, very close to getting in there. Hopefully one day. We shall see. All right. So your number nine was Greg Valentine, Steve? That's correct. My number nine, and this this feels really low for him, was, and but I mean, there were eight guys who had better years, in my opinion. My number nine was Roddy Piper. Hmm. I mean, the top babyface in the Mid-Atlantic area, I mean, scorching hot all year, had the hot feud against Buzz Sawyer on Atlanta TV. Uh, I mean, Piper, and obviously he had bigger and better things to come, but uh, Piper's my number nine. John, your thoughts on Roddy Piper in 83. Where did you have him ranked? Honestly, I didn't really have him as an honorable mention or anything. For some reason, when I think about 83 and I think about Piper, my mind right away goes, right away goes to his uh, feud with Valentine. So he really, I mean, I feel bad now. Oh. You know, you've looked off what he did for the year, but... I didn't really was he wasn't in consideration for me to be in the top ten. Hey, if our our li- if our list were identical, this would be a really boring show. <laughs> Steve, where did you have Roddy Piper? I had Roddy Piper at number six, and uh, he had a really interesting year as far as like where he worked. I mean, he started off the year in the Carolinas. He did a quick trip to Puerto Rico. Uh, he actually did like like two or three weeks in uh, Florida, and uh, there's a really weird result yes. of. Yeah, there's a really weird result of him and Mike Graham losing to uh, that year's version of the Kangaroos, which was Don Kent and Bob Heffernan. Wow. <laughs> so I, maybe that was why he left so soon. But uh, but soon he would be back in the Carolinas, and he feuded with Valentine pretty much the entire year. And like you said, he ended it with a bang, and Starcade uh, banged his ear and banged himself. And and then he was off to New York. We know the rest of what happened after that. Yeah, I, that trip to Puerto Rico is quite legendary, as some of you might know. And, um, I mean, Roddy Piper, you know, he – I mean, once again, he had a great year. It's hard for me to just have him as low as he was. But – when he was in Florida, like he was teaming up with Kevin Sullivan, and they did the thing with the magazines where, oh, he was just curious. But back in the day, a lot of guys took a week's vacation in Florida and wrestled a few nights so they could write it off. And I think that's what happened. That, that makes a lot of sense because he was only there a couple of weeks, it looks like. Yeah. All right. John, who did you have at number eight? I had the Junkyard Dog, a.k.a. Stagger Lee at number eight. Stagger and Lee. I just- yeah, I just, you know, going back and looking at, you know, the cards for them, he was still doing, you know, matches in front of 19, 20,000 people in Mid-South. He was still on fire. He would lose the tournament to Mr. Olympia for the uh, North American title, but win it in uh, April and then carry that through July and losing it to Butch Reed. But I would say that Junkyard Dog still at that point in 83 was the MVP of Mid-South. 
I had Junkyard Dog as an honorable mention, and it's hard to leave him off because you know he was such a big deal in Mid South. You know his best days were already behind him, but he was still the lead babyface in Mid South, and that that whole North American uh, title tournament thing was such a mess. Sometimes Bill Watts, <laughs> as great a booker as he was, just overthought things and made them too complicated. Steve, your thoughts on Junkyard Dog? Where did you have him ranked? I had him unranked, and I really wanted to put him on my list. I, I at one point I wanted to put him like number nine or number ten, like near the end, uh, because I, I really like him uh, as a wrestler and as a personality. I actually went back and re-listened to that Ricardo Coleman uh, six hundred five Super podcast, and uh, Ricardo, who grew up in the area and had uh, you know seen JYD at his best and his worst, he, he basically said this was the year he started to really bulk up and uh, slow down in the ring, and mm-hmm. and his work rate really went started to go downhill. On the positive side, uh, I can see why John put him there because. You know, Vince still wanted him. There were promotions that really wanted to use him, and he was still quite marketable. So uh, I can definitely so- see why John put him in that spot. Yeah, definitely. He had a ton of charisma. And yeah, Bill Watts would get on TV and start making excuses for him, like, yo, he's bulking up for his matches against King Kong Bundy and Kamala. And it's like, okay, <laughs> that's how that goes. <laughs> Usually that bulk is, uh, you know, from the belly up, not from the belly down. So, you know, that's where he was getting at. Oh, man, we're picking on poor JYD, but it's a reality. I mean, he was a big star, and but he was his he was getting out of shape. And when the when Bill Watts starts acknowledging that, you know, there's a problem. All right, yeah, uh, Steve, I'm sorry. Who's your number eight? My number eight, uh, without without any big uh, uh, <laughs> drum roll, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Oh, wow. uh, oh yeah, he had uh, um, amazing feud, the tag team feud with Jay Youngblood against Slaughter and Kernodal for most of the first half of the year. Uh, in the second half, uh, the same team, the, the big team was facing the Briscoe brothers. And, and we all know Steamboat, this was his close to his peak period as a wrestler. And the, you know, his singles matches were outstanding. Uh, he didn't really, didn't really wrestle uh, flair that much. He only had a handful of matches with flair this year, but uh, you know, steamboat pound for pound, uh, you know, one of the best of all time. You know, I did not have a steamboat under consideration, but you just made a heck of a case for him. I mean, the road to Greensboro or the, the big sh- show they had at Greensboro, you know, I mean, they they were they had to turn around turn away like six thousand people and it made a mess out of the highway and it spawned Starcade. So yeah, I mean he, he definitely deserves consideration. John, where did you have Ricky Steamboat ranked? I didn't have him in consideration or an honorable mention either. But you, you make a good point for Steamboat because when I think of Steamboat in '83, I think of you know of course Slaughter and Canoodle, and then I think of uh, Starcade '83 against the Briscoes, which uh, to me wasn't a great match, but yeah, I can see thinking Steamboat, Steamboat could always be in the, you know, the talks of being in the top 10 in any era, you know, well, not every year, but he's such a, such a talented guy. So great in the ring. So it's a, that's a pretty good choice to step out and pick Steamboat. You know, it's, it's amazing uh, looking at his results from that year, because uh, that team with Jay Youngblood, he had like about, you know, two dozen cage matches, you know, like half with the Kernodal and Slaughter and half with the Briscoes. And he had all kinds of gimmick matches, uh, <laughs> like blood bloodbath matches, uh, boot camp matches. And, uh, and you know, and he, he was 
you know, one of the arguably the best pure wrestler there is. So I, I had to put him on my list. I, I can totally see that. And one other point in his favor, I mean, nothing against Jay Youngblood, but we knew who the star of that tag team was. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Number eight, I had the Magnificent Morocco. Based on he had a huge run against Bob Backlund to start the year. He was the Intercontinental Champion for almost all of 1983. And then we get to the dream feud with Jimmy Snuka uh, when he arrived in the WWF. And I kind of figured out eventually that he was not winning the championship. I was like, okay, I really want to see Morocco versus Snuka in, in a feud, and I got it, and I got to see live in Boston the cage match between Jimmy Snuka and Don Morocco, where Jimmy Snuka jumped off the top of the cage and crushed Morocco. So I think you know Snuka, I have him ranked higher than Morocco, but at the same time, it takes two to tango, and Snuka would not have been anywhere near as big a star, in my opinion, had he not had that perfect feud, that perfect guy to bounce off off of john where did you have magnificent don morocco ranked i actually had don morocco at number three. Oh wow <laughs> i yeah. love it i mean again winning the title in january of 83 beating pedro matches against backland rocky johnson jimmy snuka you know he had you know i think he had like strap matches against backland cage matches to get back against backland snuka and everything he had a monster 83 and again you know, you were you had such a hot heel that you could put your world champion against, even though he's the IC champion, or Jimmy Snuggle, or Rocky Johnson. So, yeah, I just felt that Morocco was just super, super important to the WWF in 1983. So I stuck him in number three. He really was super important. You're making a really good case for him. I mean, Rocky, poor Rocky Johnson, right? His feud versus Morocco gets largely forgotten because... Morocco feuded with Jimmy Snooker right after, and then his feud with Roddy Piper is largely forgotten in 1984 because it was followed up by Roddy Piper against Jimmy Snooker. So, I mean, Rocky really did a good, <laughs> really had a great year out here. I'm not going to argue for him for you know wrestler of the year, but he had a big 1983 in the WWF, won the tag team championship too. Yeah, yeah, but with Atlas. Now, if I if I if you've already told me who your number three or number four is, just say so. I apologize. The, the bullets are flying out here, John. Who did you have as your number seven? This one might shock you guys, but I had this, the other Stagger Lee in wrestling, Mister Coco Ware. Wow, in Memphis, that, that does yeah. shock me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Coco had won the Mid America title. There, he was at the top of the card or high on the card for most of the year with, uh, you know, tagging with Lawler, maybe tagging and fighting against uh, Bobby Eaton. But when you look at a lot of the big cards that Memphis had, Coco Ware was up at the top. And, you know, to me, it was let's flip a coin between him and Lawler for the MVP of, you know, the Memphis and everything. And, and I just felt the stagger Lee deserved it. Just because of where he placed in the cards throughout the whole year. You know what? I need to be more familiar with 1983 Memphis. I have seen some of it, um, and it, it's available out there. I think it's available. To, uh, most of it's available to watch on YouTube, but I have not seen enough. So I, I Coco Ware was not on my list. But again, John, you've done a great job advocating for him. Steve, your thoughts on Coco Ware in 1983. Did you have him ranked? 
He was unranked for me. Uh, you know, just hearing this, I want to go back and revisit it because, you know, I think a lot of people just take him for granted because of what happened to him in the WWF. Uh, I remember the first time I saw him in the WWF, and I, I thought he was outstanding. I, I really wish, uh, thinking back about him and when he debuted in 86, that uh, that initial excitement for him when he came in that with the, I think the bird, the Morris day song was his uh, theme song. And I know they kind of went to the generic uh, Titan sports theme songs after that, but, uh, but his ability in the ring and his colorfulness, and it, he just was perfect for the WWF, but he got, you know, because of his size, I guess he got forgotten about and just put in prelims and doing jobs. But I would definitely like to revisit what he did in 83 uh, because of what John said. And you talk about uh, Coco's size. If you look at him, you know, he wasn't always super tall, but you know, he's super strong, you know, and he had great drop kick. He could fly. He had, you know, some strength to him. So, yeah, in Memphis, he wasn't a really small guy. It wasn't until you got to the WWF that you thought, man, he wasn't a very big guy at all. I mean, I remember when he debuted in the WWF, I want to say August or September 1986, and, you know, seeing him, and like Steve said, he was really colorful, he had the bird, he had that drop kick, and I thought it was a shame, because let's be honest, you know, in 1986, the WWF needed more persons of color represented on their roster, and I was very hopeful that, you know, he would get a bigger push, and really, he's a guy whose push was not proportional proportionate to you know the the level that the fans the level he got over is what i'm trying to say like i thought he got over bigger than his push yeah he got over on his talent more than the promotion getting behind him and his charisma exactly all right steve who's your number seven my number seven started the year in the Rat Pack with Matt Bourne, and he feuded with JYD and Jim Dugan, or Jim Duggan, however you want to call it. And uh, he just had an awesome year, uh, a major heel of the year, as we discussed in one of our recent shows. And he had a big feud over the national championship in Atlanta with Tommy Rich. I'm talking about the future million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase. Ted, you know, it's funny. I literally, right before we started recording, we started recording at 4 o'clock. At 3 o'clock, I was watching the Mid-South Wrestling episode when Ted DiBiase finalized his turn on Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Uh, Ted DiBiase said, you know, promised Jim Duggan, look, I'll have nothing to do with Skandor Akbar. We'll just go our separate ways peacefully. And then, you know, Ted DiBiase comes out and defends Skandor Akbar and uses the loaded glove to KO Hacksaw Jim Duggan. DiBiase, in my opinion, because it's 1983 and we're going to trash Georgia once again. I mean, he made that promotion watchable single-handedly when he came in. Now, you know, he had been a babyface two years earlier in Georgia. They surprised everyone with a turn. Uh, his turn was hilarious. Ronnie Garvin was brawling with I forget who, but Ronnie Garvin was being double teamed. And Ted DiBiase comes out. And he's got a chair, and it looks like he's going to hit Ronnie Garvin. Garvin turns around, sees him. DiBiase hands him the chair, like, "Here, Ron, I'm here to help you." Garvin turns around to smack someone with the chair. Instead, Ted DiBiase loads up his glove and hits him in the back of the head. It was hilarious. But, <laughs> so he was on my, you know, more great wrestlers than spots list. I had him, looks like number 15. John, what, what were your thoughts? Did you have Ted DiBiase ranked in 1983? No. 
No, not at all. But I just made a note as you guys were talking that just says check out 83 DiBiase. There we go. Check out 80. You know what? If you have Peacock, start with 82 DiBiase. 82 DiBiase, okay. All right. In my opinion, Ted DiBiase, not the million-dollar man Ted DiBiase, but Mid-South Ted DiBiase is the greatest wrestling heel of all time. And I'm not just saying that because his name popped up. You could have asked me that question independently. This guy, he was scary. He had ice water for blood, and he would smack you and kill you just like he'd smack a mosquito. He did not care. He was great in the ring, too. Oh, he was phenomenal in the ring. One of the best in-ring wrestlers, I mean, of the 80s. We're talking he could be number two. My number seven. Oh, I'm sorry, Steve. Well, who was your number seven? Uh, That was DiBiase. Oh, okay. DiBiase. I confuse easily, folks. My number seven uh, feels like he's a little bit low, but he was part of a faction. He was the leader of a faction. Of course, I'm talking about Michael Hayes, one of the best interviews in the business. And he, as the leader of the Freebirds, helped turn world class or maybe even single handedly turn world class from kind of a mid-major promotion into a big time promotion. I, I recently learned that the loser leave town cage match uh was that I'm not sure if it was a cage match or not, but his loser leave town match versus Kerry Von Eric, they had to turn away like five thousand people. So I mean big year and you know once again turned around the 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 Few, uh, turn around, just turn world class around by himself, John. Where did you have Michael Hayes listed? You know, he wasn't really one that I would consider for the top ten, but that was the struggle. Also, is that you look at if you're looking at the MVPs of territories, and you have to think of the three Von Erichs, and you have to think of the three um, Freebirds. So you're kind of like, who do you pick out of there? And like I said, I picked David. You know, out of that, but Michael Hayes was just so important to to you know. Uh, the Von Eric feud and everything they did in Texas. And he just, just talking. I mean, the guy wasn't great in the ring, but just his mouth alone could draw you, you know, 20,000 people to come and just see him get beat up. Yeah. I mean, that was the difficulty for me. It's like, okay, if, if, you know, I, I have Michael Hayes, number seven, well, where's Terry Gordy and where's Michael Hayes without Terry Gordy. Right. And if you put, you put him in there, so you put him where he is and he's like, okay, do I put a, now, do I put a Von Eric above him, or is there a Von Eric below him? But yeah, if it's MVP, you're, you might be right about it being Hayes for um, world class. You know, I've, I've told this story on the show before, but I, don't, I, don't, I think it's been years since I shared this anecdote. We're at the Boston Garden, uh, Labor Day weekend, 1983, and they announced the show for the next month, uh, Bob Backlund versus super, a mass superstar rematch. Uh, and then they say at the end, and they're like, oh, and we ha- also have a special appearance. SD Jones will be wrestling. Michael Hayes of the fabulous Freebirds and the place came unglued. (laughs) And all we talked about on the way home was, Oh my God, the Freebirds are coming to the WWF. What are they going to do? Or is it going to be Michael Hayes versus Bob Backlund, Terry Gordy versus Bob Backlund, Hayes and and, uh, Gordy, maybe winning the tag team titles. And we never heard anything about it ever again. They just like threw that trial balloon out there. It wasn't on the program. It wasn't mentioned on TV, nothing, but the reception he got in Boston where he had never been. But I mean, we obviously we got the world-class TV show out there. I think they were just doing that to try to figure out how many people, you know, who came to the WWF events, watch world-class. It's a sneaky thing to do to your, uh, 
your fans. <laughs> WWF was the heel that night. <laughs> I mean, I, I as soon as they did, as soon as it was not mentioned on TV, I was like, I have the feeling Michael Hayes isn't coming. And you know, the <laughs> night arrived, and no Michael Hayes, no mention of it, nothing. John, where did you have uh, John? You did not have Michael Hayes ranked. Steve, how about no. you with Michael Hayes? When I started working on this list, I, I, I put Michael Hayes there. I put Terry Gordy there. I put all the Von Erichs there. And mm-hmm. I had Adonis there. I had Orndorff there. But before you know it, they were all off the list. <laughs> it was just you're adding you're adding a lot more people. You're taking people off. And they're great wrestlers. Michael Hayes, uh, I can see why you would vote for him. Uh, uh, but I just I just couldn't find any room for him on my list. Now, that was my biggest problem in this process. I mean, they were more wrestlers that deserved to be in the top 10 than there were 10 spots. But all right, uh, John, how, who did you have for number six? Mine was Greg Valentine was my number six. OK. All right. We discussed Valentine. Steve, who did you have for number six? My number six was uh, Roddy Piper, and uh, yeah, we've already kind of talked about him, but uh, one of the all-time greats. Okay. My number six, and again, this is where it's getting harder and harder because, I mean, he easily could have been higher up the list. I have the feeling you guys have him ranked higher than I do. Number six was Bob Backlund for me. Bob Backlund was a little bit like Nick Bockwinkle, you know, it's just another year of him being what he was. Um, his work rate took a considerable step backward in 1983. His interviews went tanked. Um, you know, his whole act felt a little bit tired, but at the same time, he was the face of the WWF franchise, which was absolutely on fire in 1983. And let's face it, you know, until December 26th, he was the WWF champion. I mean, that's that's a big deal. John, where did you have Bob Backlund ranked? I didn't have him. I just had him as an honorable mention down with the Iron Sheik at number 10. But, you know, do you think that, you know, Bob falling off, you know, in 83, do you think that has anything to do with uh, Vince McMahon Jr. buying the company? Maybe he saw some writing on the wall and saw how hot Snooka was in the Morocco. And I mean, he was wrestling Morocco and having, you know, of course, still the champion. But do you think that he maybe saw the writing on the wall and was like, you know what? I'm not sure how much longer I'm going to be champion around here. Or maybe he didn't feel as motivated without Vince Sr. overlooking everything. Uh, Steve, what are your thoughts on that? My my thought on that is I think um, I think I mean just by what I read in, in his book it seemed like Bob was kind of oblivious to what was going on behind the scenes. I mean I mean it seemed like uh, he was meeting with the elder Vince at the Garden uh, before, you know for the matches and and they were still talking quite frequently and I think Bob was dealing with uh, Vince's father you know a lot and. And it seems like from what he said in the book that he was just kind of surprised when the change was made and he was going to be dropping the belt. It was almost like it was just out of the blue that this decision had been made and he was kind of caught off guard by it. Um, I didn't I didn't have Backlund on my list at all. Um, we when we reviewed the uh, promotions last week and we talked about, uh, you know, who was the most overrated. <laughs> I think I had Bob as most overrated. I mean, on the plus side, he did have some good matches. I think he had a great series with Koloff, and uh, he had some other uh, good matches with Slaughter and some other people. But everything was going down. I mean, the the matches went down. The um, everything but the attendance. The, the attendance was still going really well, but uh, he just didn't make my list. 
All right, and that that's understandable. Wow, and once again, if our lists were identical, this would be a very boring show. But I mean, <laughs> I I felt like I could have had Bob Backlund higher, if only because once again he was the face of the WWF, and the WWF was absolutely on fire in nineteen eighty three. I mean, don't get me wrong; we would go to the Boston Garden ten or eleven times in eighty three and blew our lungs out at Bob Backlund. So. <laughs> <laughs> But all right, so number five, John, who did you have? I had David Von Erich at number oh, five. Oh, th- that's right. My apologies. Steve, how about your number five? My number five is uh, Jimmy Snuka, and I just, even though we've kind of talked about him a little bit already, I wanted to add one uh, humorous uh, thing I found on his record book here. Uh, he really wrestled the entire year of 83 in the WWF, but for some reason, uh, he made a, a stop in St. Louis in October, and according to the record book, he had two matches in St. Louis. He beat Roger Kirby, which may have been, may have been a squash match and then he teamed with dick the bruiser to beat B- blackjack mulligan and killer Krupp. that may have been on most larry Madison shows but uh beyond that he was back in the wwf after that that was definitely a larry Madison show and that that the whole larry Madison uh versus the established st louis thing i mean that that could be its own show that's a, a crazy subject I had no idea they brought in Jimmy Snooker, but supposedly he did the Superfly Splash, and that was, you know, you can't jump off the top rope in St. Louis, and they had a big argument about that, and they told him, you know, okay, don't do it, and then he does it again, <laughs> and the State <laughs> Athletic Commission just had a meltdown over it. All right, so, okay, I, I feel a little bit better about having Bob Backlund ranked as low as I did. Uh, my number five was the NWA champion for part of the year, Harley Race. I was not happy when I learned that Harley Race had regained the NWA championship from Ric Flair. Uh, I felt like he had been champion long enough, and it felt like, you know, we were in reruns in 1983 with Harley Race, you know, again against Dusty Rhodes, again against Mr. Wrestling 2, again against Tommy Rich. Uh, But, I mean, what can I say? If you're the NWA champion, you're the face of the largest promotion out there, you know, you're the the world champion in multiple promotions. I mean, you're worthy of consideration, and he was still a great worker in 1983. Uh, John, where did you have Harley Race listed? I had just Harley as an honorable mention. You know, here you have they're concerned about Vince, you know, or what he may do, so they decide to put the title on Harley to try to protect, you know, the St. Louis territory. And then he was able to pass the torch to Flair at Starcade 83. So I had him as an honorable mention, but I didn't have him in my top 10. Okay, Steve, how about you? He, he was unranked on my list, but, uh, you know, you make a good point. And, and Vince wanted to bring him in. He wanted to bring him in as champion uh, and maybe do some kind of uh, deal where, you know, Hogan beats him in addition to beating the Sheik. <laughs> you know, or, or, or you know, maybe he would have been the WWF champion. Who knows? But, but yeah, Harley's work rate was outstanding. I mean, until that terrible uh, crash into the table with Hogan on NBC a few years later, I mean, his work rate was outstanding. But, um, you know, I, I feel like you guys, I just felt he was a little long on the tooth to be in the top 10 for the most part. You know, and, and I've, I'm listening to you guys, and you're mo- both basically making a great point that, you know, yeah, he was NWA champion. What else? And it's like, uh, <laughs> it was the hair, John. You were drawn to that afro. That firm <laughs> set it off. The mutt chops. 
There you go. I, I, when I first started getting magazines, I'm like, okay, this guy has no real hair color. It like changes from magazine to magazine, from like this bleach <laughs> blonde to this shoe polish uh, black. But <laughs> anyway, I mean, good thing Harley was a tough guy. No one's going to say anything about his hair. I was about to say there was a spread in one of the after magazines where he was at home. And he's standing in a kitchen. He's got like a gold chain around his neck, a big gold watch, that permed hair, cooking Chinese food with his family. I'm like, this is hilarious. (laughs) You know, I didn't believe the story about Harley Race, like Vince McMahon trying to recruit Harley Race in 1983 and showing up uh, in the WWF with the title belt until I read it in Harley's autobiography. And he said he was in the bathroom with Vince McMahon and he looked in the mirror and he said, Vince, you know, I have to look in the mirror every day and I can't do what you're asking me to do. And it just Harley was a man's man. And wasn't didn't Crockett give him extra money or something to make it to? I thought I'd heard something about giving him an extra 25,000. That was in Flair's book that Crockett gave uh, Harley an extra $25,000 for doing that. Uh, it, it, it's possible. I mean, if Harley got to parley that into some extra cash, I mean, you know, but in the in the end, I think he would have come out with more had he jumped to Vince. I think the biggest reason is he just didn't want to do it. Number four, John, who do you have? Jimmy Snuka. That's my number four. Yep. So I know that we had just talked a little bit about him, but what can you say about Snuka in 83? And, you know, I'd like to make, if I could, a correction to something I said on one of the previous shows. I had made a comment that Snuka jumped through the ropes at Don Morocco, he actually jumped over the ropes out of the ring onto Don Morocco, which was even more spectacular than jumping through the ropes. So I just wanted to correct that, you know, before we moved on. Jimmy Snooker was also my number four for 1983. And again, that almost feels so low because he had such a sensational year. If you grew up in the Northeast, as the three of us did watching the WWF, I mean, this guy was beyond on fire in 1983. Even though Bob Backlund was still the WWF champion, I think it's fair to say that Jimmy Snooker was the lead baby face. And I mean, no one surpassed the WWF champion as far as I know before that. Maybe Bruno over Pedro, but that's it. Uh, Steve, your thoughts on Snooker for 1983? Well, uh, I, I had to put him at number uh, uh, five. And, and I, I, I intentionally put Morocco at number four because Morocco had his head on straight. And I, I think Morocco actually got the call from Vince or from uh, one, one of the inside people saying, hey, you're, you're, you're on the scene. Uh, I think when the, the Nancy Argentina thing happened and he was relaying information. And, and I think Morocco, right around the same time, it might have even been the same night, He'd been in a, in a hospital when the Rick McGraw, uh, I think his car slid on the ice or something, and he was re- reporting back on Rick McGraw's uh, condition as well. Uh, so, I mean, Morocco did everything. Um, Snuka uh, loses points for me for the whole Nancy Argentina thing. I mean, yes, great, great ability in the ring, you know, ph- phenomenal athlete, but what, what he did and the way he treated her is just uh, beyond, uh, beyond comment. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, and here's the thing. I'm looking at it from a perspective, and you don't have to do this, but like uh, January 1st, 1984, I'm, I'm driving home from Montreal, and I'm like, okay, what's your top 10 like? And back then, I had no idea what was going on behind the scenes. 
Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Now, now we know the true story. But, and I guess I included that in my criteria. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, Snook, uh, you know, without knowing all the inside information, uh, anyone would think Snook was, you know, close to being number one. Okay. John, who did you have as your, uh, I mean, Steve, did we do your number four? Yeah, mine was Morocco. And we've kind of talked about him. So I'm, I'm good with that. All right. Uh, John, who is your number three? Don Morocco. Okay, we we went over that. Steve, who was your number three? My number three is the one we haven't really talked about. Uh, the first four months of the year, he was in that huge tag team feud that we talked about in the Carolinas. Uh, the the rest of the year, he was in the WWF. I'm talking about Sergeant Slaughter. What I remember about Slaughter the most from '83 before he became a big fan favorite was when he was. Uh, you know, doing the Harvard, uh, Bob Backlund was doing the Harvard step test and Slaughter came out with that writing crop and was beating the heck out of Bob Backlund. And we wouldn't see somebody whipped on TV like this until years later when Tony Soprano uh, beat up on Councilman, uh, what was his name? Uh, uh, I, can't, I can't remember his name. Zellman, Councilman Zellman on the Sopranos. That's it. Leave Arena alone. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Slaughter was one of those guys who I had a really hard time leaving off. I mean, he had such a big 1983 going back to the Greensboro show that we talked about already. And then he had the big run against Bob Backlund in 1983, resulting in multiple main events on, on in major arenas. It was hard for me to leave him off, but I did. How about you, John? Believe it or not, I actually did a couple different top tens. I kept just bouncing around. One of my my very first top ten, I had Sergeant Slaughter at number five. And I actually had in my notes, I had him second to Steamboat. Because I was thinking if I was going to pick somebody from that, it would be either Slaughter or Steamboat. And I had Slaughter at number five, all for everything that was Steve was saying. was Slaughter was an incredible worker. He was incredibly important, incredibly important to that feud with uh, Steamboat and Youngbud and just, he can't be denied for denied, you know, his importance to wrestling, you know, through those early eighties. I am very proud that Sergeant Slaughter follows me on Twitter and actually responded to something I said about him that, you know, he spoiled me. I went to my first major wrestling event at Holy Cross Stadium, May 1981, and he had the most amazing match I had ever seen to that point. Uh, the street fight against uh, Pat Patterson, where both guys got carted off in wow. ambulances. It was every <laughs> bit as good as the Madison Square Garden show that I got to see on tape in 1987 yeah and then he went what 84 he would have the uh, boot camp matches with uh chic great matches great matches i mean i i saw the one in boston garden from 1984 it was awesome you know it's pretty incredible john that you were able to experience a lot of the things that you know the the, the match with patterson the boot camp match with chic the dive off the top of the cage uh from snooker to uh morocco so it's really cool that you were able to, you know, experience all these great moments in wrestling. I am a lucky, lucky person. Everyone we've talked about today, I have seen live. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah and, and John got to see uh, Skolan and Backlund card off after Mass Superstar finished the both of them off in 83. That was the same night as the cage match. Holy cow. <laughs> That was a crazy night. That was, yeah. And for those unaware, they did a thing where um, 
Mass Superstar knocked out Arnold Skoland outside the ring, and then he did a corkscrew neckbreaker on Bob Backlund onto Arnold Skoland, <laughs> and they both got stretchered out. It was it was nuts. You must have thought he'd be the next champion at that point. No, actually, I didn't. I didn't see Mass Superstar. <laughs> I didn't see them putting a, a mascot, the title on a mask guy. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so where are we on this? Uh, my, is it my time for my number three? Yes. My number three, I have the feeling our top two are going to be identical just by pro- process of elimination. I had Kerry Von Erich number three. Uh, you know, I gave Michael Hayes a lot of credit for turning around world class, but, you know, Kerry Von Erich's popularity just, I mean, was huge. And maybe I have him ranked this high because we got world class here in Boston. And I, all of a sudden, we have female wrestling fans, something we had never experienced. <laughs> we had girls in my high school talking about wrestling, and we, we never had that before. So, I mean, you know, Kerry was just a huge mainstream star. Someone told me that, you know, yeah, in 1983, it was like David and, and David and Kevin were like the four seasons and Carrie was uh, Frankie Valley. And I was like, that's ridiculous. (laughs) They all got very similar pushes. And like, like we mentioned, you know, it's kind of hard to separate them. Carrie obviously became the, the number one Von Erich star when he won the NWA title. But 1983, there wasn't much separation. So, but in the end, I mean, someone from that team has to be ranked high. And I went with Carrie Von Erich. Yeah. That's a good choice. So my my first list that I did, I actually had Carrie at number seven. So I was in the same thought press that you were, you know, about process of elimination with the Von Eriks. And just because of David's uh, Missouri title winner, that's why I went with him over Carrie. Yeah, I, I did the same thing. I put him at number 10, uh, David, and, uh, and Carrie wasn't on the original list, but he got taken off too, so. Yeah, and again, Kevin Von Erich and, and David Von Erich, it was hard for me to leave them off. All right, I have the feeling that our <laughs> top twos are going to be identical, but John, who was your number two in 1983? The Grand Wizard. <laughs> <laughs> it's my number one. <laughs> what a worker. <laughs> now, it was the incredible Hulk Hogan. You know, so what can you say about Hogan in 82? He started he basically became a star you know he rose up with all the matches against Bachwinkle. he created hulkamania and you know just a few short months basically what in december and then january boom he takes the title and he's off and running for the next four years so i don't know how much more i could say about hogan in 82 i mean we could you guys could probably break it down a lot better than i could but you just can't deny this the star power of hogan steve who was your number two uh, mine was also Hulk Hogan, and I'll just add uh, to John's excellent comments. Uh, you know, as far as who he wrestled a lot that year, uh, he had the big run in Japan, which I know we're not really counting that for this exercise, but he had a big match with Anoki where he knocked Anoki out. He had uh, like about a dozen matches with Patera in the AWA. He had Jesse Ventura about 11 times in the AWA, wrestled in 49 tag matches. Uh, wrestled David Schultz eight times, wrestled Mr. Saito 10 times. But yeah, he was ready for New York, and New York was definitely ready for him. Mm-hmm. I, you see, here's how I look at it, and then the criteria I use. I, I wouldn't rank Antonio Inoki, even though if we were to include Japan, he'd definitely be on this list. But that, that's kind of not our audience. But I think if, if a wrestler 
is primarily wrestling in the United States, but he does something big in Japan that counts. And that's why Hulk Hogan is number two because of his impact, not only in the AWA, not only in St. Louis, but in Japan as well. I mean, he was their biggest foreign star uh, by by the middle of 1983. And Steve, uh, John, Steve, I don't know if you've ever seen that match where he legitimately puts Antonio Inoki into a coma. Have, have either of you seen that? I've no. seen it, yes. No, I haven't seen it. I'm going to check that out. Okay. Uh, yeah, like I said, and Hogan you know, says it was an accident. Uh, there are people who are like, no, that was no accident. Uh, Steve, after seeing it, what did you think? Uh, I mean, it just seemed like it seemed like a car wreck. I mean, it seemed like a legitimate thing. It did. It definitely didn't look like a work move that he put on him. So it did look like it was legit. I mean, it was legit. Anoki was, you know, legitimately knocked out. And I, I, I don't have an answer. I mean, Hogan looked like you know he had seen a ghost right after it happened. But I mean, what else is he going to do? Laugh? Right. Right. <laughs> So I, I, I mean, that's something we'll we'll never know. I, I, I'm not sure if that's available on YouTube, but if it if it is, audience, you might want to check that out. It's de- definitely a huge historic match. Um, so number one, I think we all have the same number one. John, who did you have number one? Nature Boy Ric Flair. You know what? How how can you deny? You know Flair. Even consider anybody else to be number one above Flair. You know, winning the title in September of '81. He keeps it basically through 83, except for the small window where Race wins it. When he lost the title, he turns around and wins the Missouri title for two months, you know, from July, August, and September, you know, beating that night in the tournament, beating Bob Brown, Butch Reed, and David Von Erich to win that title. So, you know, I've, I've been critical of Flair late in his career, but for me, between 1975 and 1987, Ric Flair was without a doubt, to me, the, the greatest wrestler in wrestling and was just top notch and head and shoulders above everybody. His schedule, you know, he wrestled a lot in uh, New Zealand, I believe in 83, you know, his tours to Japan, every, he wrestled everybody every night, never complained, was always top notch. So yeah, Flair is number one. Wasn't even, he was the first name I wrote down at number one. Steve, obviously I, I think it's obvious. You also had Ric Flair at number one. I, I did, uh, and just to add to uh, John's comments, uh, he wrestled in 76 tag matches that I could find. Uh, his his top opponents uh, were Harley Race with 24 matches. He had 18 matches with Greg Valentine, kind of a surprise there, uh, 10 matches with Bob Orton, uh, nine matches with Tony Atlas, and he did have some weird one-off matches with people you really wouldn't expect. Uh, he had uh, matches with Ken Lucas, <laughs> Jimmy Golden. Uh, he had one match in Toronto with Terry Funk. Uh, when uh, John mentioned New Zealand, uh, it was actually Mark Lewin had matches, a couple of matches with Ric Flair. So it was definitely one of the top years of the Ric Flair career, I would say. I, too, had Ric Flair as the number one wrestler in 1983. I didn't have him by as large a margin as John did, maybe even as Steve did. Uh, I thought, you know, Kerry and Hogan were definitely in the conversation for number one. But ultimately, I went with Rick, even though he had lost the title for five months or whatever it was. Um, Like John said, he was the best wrestler in the world, best in-ring performer, and that includes everybody. That includes the guys from Japan. That includes the guys from Mexico. I knew about Starcade. 
And I knew, you know, that was, that was Thanksgiving night. And when Ric Flair, uh, the Saturday after Thanksgiving, you know, shows up on WTBS with the NWA championship, to me, it felt like all was right in the, with the world. Like everything was back where it was supposed to be. Yeah. You know, you were talking about, you know, where Flair was wrestling. I don't know how many times he wrestled Barry Windham, but he had some spectacular matches with a very young Barry Windham in Florida in 83 as well. You know, I think a couple times Barry might have beat him by disqualification. And then, of course, Flair would beat Barry a few times. But, you know, you figure three years from that point, they would be having some of the best matches of all time. Oh, yeah. They had to, they had about seven singles matches that year, and they did have a number of tag matches with each other. And, and you could tell, I think, uh, you know, Flair was really close with uh, Blackjack Mulligan in real life. And I think, uh, you know, that carried over to Barry, and uh, they had phenomenal matches with each other. Yeah. I mean, once again, me being lucky, I saw Ric Flair versus Barry Windham in Boston in 1987. Uh, a guy named Joel Goodhart, who briefly promoted in Philadelphia, and he had a, a wrestling radio show in Philadelphia. He traveled up to see the Flair Windham match in Boston, and he told me that it was the best match he had ever seen between the two of them. And he had seen matches in Philadelphia, in Baltimore, I believe in Washington as well. And he was like, oh, yeah, that was the best match I've ever seen between the two of them. So, yeah, I mean, Flair, you know, one thing, though, I will say this. I think this year really didn't have that, you know, oh, my God, killer superstar like Ric Flair in 1982, in my opinion, had a bigger year than Ric Flair in 83. Bob Backlund in 82, I thought would have put ahead of Ric Flair in 83. And obviously, both Flair and Hogan in 84, I would have had them ranked ahead of this one. So it's not like obviously I'm saying he's wrestler of the year. But, you know, compared to other years, I think our number one, our unanimous number one is a little bit of a weaker candidate than usual. But do you guys agree or not agree? I don't know if I, I kind of agree with that. I feel that Flair just top notch through, you know, his first basically first title reign was just untouchable. Everything that he did in the ring, everything that he called, everything that he made everybody look perfect. I mean, this guy was defending his title in the parking lots of car dealerships, <laughs> you know, in the rain and things like that. And, you know, he was just the, the probably one of the greatest or maybe greatest traveling champion of all time for the NWA. And I actually got to see Flair wrestle uh, Wyndham at the Crockett cup in 87 and I don't have the live match experience, but that is the greatest match I ever saw in person. Oh, wow. Crockett, yeah. Crockett Cup 87. You know, Steve, I wanted to touch about something you mentioned about, you know, some of the stranger opponents that Ric Flair had, you know, Ken Lucas, Jimmy Golden, etc. I, I miss that. I miss that about the territories that when Harley Ray's Terry Funk or Ric Flair let's say they defended the title in, in Georgia or in Florida. Like it wasn't always against dusty roads in Florida. You know, sometimes you would have that kind of strange looking match in, in retrospect, but you know, Ric Flair versus a Steve Kern, for example, in like 1980, you know, that that's what I miss about the territories. One thing I miss. Yeah. And, and if you look at the rosters of our uh, two major promotions now, I mean, the rosters are so stale. I mean, it's a shame you wouldn't see like just on some night on SmackDown that uh, Dolph Ziggler is in the main event. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's a guy that, that uh, you know, he's got a really great uh, skill set, but he's just like looked upon as like the in-house jobber to the stars. And uh, but, you know, wrestling has changed so much. It's kind of hard to compare these eras, I guess. 
they blew it with Dolph Ziggler. And of course, <laughs> with that name, they blew it with that guy. <laughs> he was a he is a real talent, and it's over. It's never going to happen for him. But anyway, he was great. He was. Uh, it, it's a darn shame. All right, let's talk about uh, some of the guys we had as uh, some of the guys we had as honorable mention. It was hard for me not to have Dusty Rhodes in the top 10, but there just weren't enough spots. Yes, it was no longer, you know, 1977. Uh, he and Florida had cooled off, but Dusty was still one of the premier names in the business. Uh, I, I noticed you guys didn't have him ranked either, so we're in, we're in agreement on that. John, your thoughts on Dusty Rhodes in 1983? You know, I was very critical of Dusty in the last two episodes that we did, but I, you know, I I just want to kind of clarify that Dusty for me as a young fan in 86 and 87 was just one of my favorites, you know, so charismatic. Yeah. He wasn't a high flyer or anything, but just what he could do, way he could talk, the way he moved in the ring. You know, I was looking at some of the stuff that he did in Florida and a lot of it, he had some, you know, more of the uh, midnight rider going, but yeah, I mean, he still was the star, of Florida. And even though it had cooled off and we were critical of the booking down that way, it's still dusty. So yeah, I, I completely get, you know, thinking of dusty in 83 and knowing what he was going to be able to do by 86, you know, he turned things around for Crockett. So yeah, I'm, I'm a big dusty guy, even though it didn't seem like I was in the last two episodes. No, that's, that's totally understandable. Um, I mean, if you had asked me, if you were in a room with me 40 years ago talking wrestling, I would have been like, when is the WWF going to bring Dusty Rhodes up here and make him the WWF champion instead of Bob Backlund? Any thoughts on Dusty Rhodes in 1983, Steve? Well, he, he had, uh, I think he came in for a cameo in uh, MSG against one of the Samoans. Uh, he did. Yeah, I remember that. And uh yeah, yeah, and he was he was doing a lot of stuff in in Florida obviously. Uh you know, for, for Dusty looking back on it now, it, it's cool that he got the gig with Crockett because they really needed him. They needed like a creative director to come in there and uh give them some guidance on what they have to do and I think a lot of the fans today look back on the more negative aspect of his booking, but uh, Crockett needed a, somebody to kind of guide them and show them the way. And, and for, for three or four years, he did a great job. Yeah. You know, you look back at the old Mid-Atlantic territory, they really didn't have a number one baby face except for uh, Ric Flair when he turned, and that only lasted until he won the NWA championship. And, oh, maybe Wahoo McDaniel, but I mean – they they didn't really have that that top number one guy, no questions asked. He's the Hulk Hogan of, of Mid Atlantic Wrestling in nineteen eighty four. I'm with you, Steve. I think that really worked. Yeah, and, and I think Dory was doing some of the booking around that time, and you know he wasn't uh, the most creative booker, I don't think. And uh, you know Dusty is booker. Dusty is the lead uh, face of the promotion. Was definitely. Uh, you know, something that Mid-Atlantic needed, and uh, he did great those first few years. You know, by 88, we were tired of him, but he was great the first few years. No, I, I agree. I also, let me see, who have we not discussed? Buzz Sawyer, it was easy not to have him in the top 10, but let's be honest, he was the top star in the Georgia promotion throughout 1983 that went out on national cable. Uh, John, did you even give Buzz Sawyer an honorable honorable mention? No, um, you know, I don't know much about Sawyer for 83, except for his, you know, feud with uh, Tommy Rich. So to me, when I think of Sawyer in 83, I think of Tommy Rich in the last battle of Atlanta. So he really wasn't on my radar. 
Okay, no, I just mentioned him because, like I said, he was on everyone. He was on World Championship Wrestling every Saturday, getting a giant push. And by probably about a month or two months before they turned him, I I don't figure everything out, but I saw that okay, okay, Buzz Sawyer is going to get turned, and he's going to be the big baby face star of this promotion. Steve, I'm guessing you didn't have Buzz Sawyer listed either. He wasn't on my list, and I would say that we we really mentioned just about everybody who was in my honorable mention list, with the exception of Jerry the King Lawler. I think he deserves a mention because he uh, had a very solid year, and uh, he was definitely the, the king of Memphis that year. No, Jerry Lawler, it was hard for me to leave him off because he was such a big star in that territory and he occasionally went to the AWA, but let's face it, I mean, being the number one guy in Memphis is, you know, just having just this one year, you know, just has its limitations. I mean, I, I had him on honorable mention, but I can't apologize for not having him in the top 10. John, your thoughts on Jerry Lawler, 1983. Yeah, Lawler was my honorable mention with uh, Coco Ware. You know, it was almost mm-hmm. like, and I actually went with Coco to basically see if we can, you know, shine a light on the talent that was Coco Ware and his tag team with, you know, Bobby Eaton and the things that he was doing in Memphis. But yeah, Lawler would have, if I hadn't leaned towards Coco, it would have been Lawler for um, Memphis for me. One name that we haven't mentioned this entire show, I don't believe. I, I, I just don't see him as a top 10 guy, uh, even though he had a very successful 1983 was Andre the Giant. I, I couldn't rank him, but I think he at least deserves to be mentioned. John, your thoughts on Andre in 1983? Uh, to me, it was just just another year of Andre. Yeah, you know, I didn't see anything, you know, when I was going back through, seeing anything that stuck out. I mean, I'm sure he was just still traveling around, you know, here and there. I mean, was he still going territory to territory around 83? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Was he? Uh, that surprises me because it felt like he was in the WWF more than usual in 1983. But Steve, I, I mean, if you've looked it up. Well, a- actually, uh, in this Meltzer Observer yearbook that we were looking at, he was mentioned a few times. Uh, he actually wrestled Flair in Miami Beach and they sold it out. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah. And um, uh, I, he was he was on my list, too, because as the WWF started the national expansion in 83 and they were going to towns that they had never been to before, he was usually in the main event in a battle royal just to kind of like introduce, you know, fans in a new city to wrestling. And, uh, of course, he would go over. And that was good, too, because, you know, putting Andre over continuously, uh, that's what you know, made 1987 and WrestleMania three so important because people looked at Andre as the undefeated giant. Right. Yeah, by 1983, I personally was just kind of getting tired of Andre the Giant. I know that sounds crazy that, you know, wow, look at this guy. He's incredible. But, you know, to me, he was doing the same match over and over on TV. The feud versus stud was fun. I mean, Battle of the Giants. But, I mean, I I can – he deserves an honorable mention, but I just couldn't put him in the top ten. John, did you have anyone honorable mention that we have not discussed? No, we pretty much covered everybody because, you know, again, looking back at um, World Clash, you're you're bouncing between Gordy, Roberts, Hayes, uh, Kevin, Carey, David, Lawler, you know, Rocky Johnson maybe in the WWF. But no, we, we covered everybody. But I know this is kind of off subject, but I'd also like to correct something else I misspoke about in the other episodes. We had talked about – I had sp- spoken about Mike Rotunda and I said that him and Wyndham would get together and win – the WWF tag title in 84, I was wrong. They won it in January of 85 
from Adonis and Murdoch. So I just wanted to to clarify that and correct what I had said. So no, sorry to get away the from end that. of the world. Yeah, the, the <laughs> very surprise uh, title switch in Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, it just goes to show you that things were changing. Steve, is there another wrestler that you wanted to mention that we have not brought up? I think we've really mentioned them all, but I, I know I mentioned him very b- briefly in passing, but I'm a big uh, Adrian Adonis fan. And, uh, I, you know, he was really at his, probably his peak around here. I know the observer writers, uh, as far as their ranking of wrestlers, they, I think he was like at number three overall as far as top in ring workers. He wasn't in any real high profile matches or high profile angles, but his work, his work was phenomenal in 83. Yeah, Adonis was part of that whole like Southwest Championship Wrestling thing, and where the, one of the guys Larry Matisik would bring into his sure. outlaw group. And but yeah, I mean he didn't do anything that really stood out to me. So there you go. There are our list of Wrestler of the Year for 1983. Steve, thank you for all of the great work you've done. John, thank you for returning and doing this extra episode with us. Thank you so much. I, I had a I had a blast doing this, and I know, you know, my my knowledge of early '80s wrestling isn't with you guys. So I appreciate what you shared for me, and you gave me a lot of notes for things to look back at and you know study because I love the history of wrestling. Well, uh, thank you. And you know what? I mean, stick to wrestling is what it is. It's me and usually Steve just hanging out with one of our friends and talking wrestling. And I always have a blast doing it. Uh, so with that, I want to thank everyone for listening. We'll be back next week. Uh, I want to thank Brian Last for giving me this this forum. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does producing this show, uh, basically correcting my mistakes if I'm stammering or something like that. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day.